0: Now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature?
2: You're listening to the game podcast from the Times. Today we react to the two big games involving Premier League clubs in the Champions League quarterfinals. It's victory for Manchester City and a very comfortable one over Bayern Munich, but Chelsea are beaten by Real Madrid. Is that their involvement? Over. We'll discuss Dean Smith's appointment as Leicester City's interim boss until the end of the season. Will that give them a greater chance of staying up? And we'll celebrate Wrexham's victory over Notts County through gritted teeth in the National League. This is The Game. Hello and welcome back to the game podcast. I am Hugh Wizencroft alongside Tom Clark, Tony Cascarino in London and joining us from Ghent Gregor Robertson. I don't know why I said it so aggressively but they are playing West Ham so maybe it's that. Gentlemen, hello. Lots for us to discuss um, obviously because Gregor is out in Ghent for a Europa Conference League match. You know that it is European week and the Champions League has taken centre stage for the last couple of nights. We'll talk about last night's game first of all which was a Defeat for an English side in the Champions League. Uh quarter-final first leg. Chelsea are going to have it all to do, I think, if they're to reach the final four after they lost to Real Madrid, the holders at the Bernabeu. Karim Benzema with a tap-in. That was his 90th goal in the competition. And Real Madrid struggled to add to that lead. Neither side played particularly well until Ben Chilwell was shown a straight red card on the 59th minute for fouling Rodrigo with the Brazil forward through on goal. Marco Asensio got a second for Real Madrid to make it seem a little bit more comfortable and make the Spanish side I think firm favourites to go through despite the fact Chelsea have a home match to come of course Tony it's your former club but really on the evening it was kind of an underwhelming game in that, some of the predictions never came true at all, really. Some were thinking Real Madrid would absolutely skittle Chelsea. That never happened. They never played to their best, though. We didn't see a resurgent Chelsea. We didn't see an embarrassing Chelsea either. It, was, it, was, it wasn't really a damp squib, but um, failed to deliver fireworks. Let's say that.
3: Yeah, it was um, a strange game to watch in many ways because Chelsea kept giving the ball away and certainly in midfield areas, and they've got huge experience with internationals. Obviously, Fernandes, um, Angola Kante, Kovacic, you know, all top quality internationals who play for some of the biggest nations in world football. They lacked so much up front. It was scary, you know, watching Sterling and Felix trying to make headway and Oak had had an opportunity early long. Look, they've gone now, what, four games before this, that game last night about scoring. You can clearly see that they don't look... I mean, I did laugh because after the match, Frank Lampard's first quote was, we've got, you know, the opportunity now to make it a very special night at Stanford Bridge. Now, uh, the, what, what evidence can you give Chelsea any chance? Real Madrid didn't have to play their best football last night. Now, they were... Mm. I mean, I thought for Vinicius Junior... He had Fafania in his pocket and also he Reese james he went up against either of them and he embarrassed them a couple of times. He was absolutely on fire. Benzema led the line like only Benzema can. He was brilliant in his role as that centre forward. Rodrigo on the other side was causing problems. Chelsea looked unfit as well, Hugh. That mm-hmm. didn't look a fit Chelsea team. I know, obviously, Kante's been out injured. Thiago Silva has. Koulibaly's been injured at times. Rhys-James has been injured at times. That showed... They look like they weren't able, Reese James is no one, able to match physically. I felt Real Madrid were comfortable. but it's 2-0. We don't need any more. Without, without playing particularly we're, well. Without playing particularly well, which Real Madrid are not quite as good as what they were last season. Mm. You know, they're, they're, there is evidence that, you know, you look at them and think they're not quite the same yeah, team. I
2: think that was their fifth win in the past 10 matches. I mean, it's not like they're battering everyone at the moment, no, despite, despite some big wins over Barcelona. Well, yeah, of
3: Barcelona game stands out. I'm very pessimistic about Chelsea's chances because I don't see any evidence to say, you know, first of all, Real Madrid are a great counter-attack team. So if, if Chelsea press and press... Vinicius Jr. doesn't chase back. He doesn't chase better forwards than for other wing-backs. He tends to like, let them go, and if they get the ball, they're straight to him. And he does that brilliantly well. He's it's it used to be the, the 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 cheating sort of role. People say, he's cheating, he's not getting back and tracking back. But it's quite clear, aren't you, like he's saying, stay there, and if we do rob the ball, because we have enough legs elsewhere, and when we do get it, it's coming straight to you.
2: Yeah, I don't think Chelsea were particularly great... Tom in this game uh, I, I, like I say I don't think Real Madrid were either but I don't see I was going to say Graham Potter's side I don't see Frank Lampard's side summoning anything in the second leg that that makes me believe they can go through without you know at this point something miraculous because I think Real Madrid will score in that game it's a strange one sat here reflecting on it the morning after I agree with
4: everything Tony's saying I agree with your points Hugh but it was interesting watching the game during it in the office last night I was editing last night and I kind of found myself and a lot of other people in the office quite surprised. And I couldn't decide whether it was whether Madrid were in mm. first gear and weren't weren't that good, or that Chelsea actually at least had a plan. And, you know, Tony, you referenced those three midfielders. When they're fit and on form, that mm. could be a midfield trio to rival any in Europe, really, mm. when yeah. you think about that kind of both experience and potential of Enzo Fernandez, They could be a real, like, dare I say it, Champions League winning midfield trio. They, they've got that quality but then the kind of points about fitness fatigue form I mean we speaking to Tom Roddy after the game who's out there for us and he was saying he reckons N'Colo Kante is only about 30% fit but Lampard obviously and understandably went for experience and threw them all in and kind of hoped that it might come off and I kind of ended up viewing it and sat here listening to you guys thinking about Chelsea in a bigger picture and Hugh you know you referenced uh, it being Graham Potter's side and oh no no it's Frank Lampard's side in reality it's none it's neither of their sides is it because it's about who the next manager is and brings it forward and I think what last night showed is that there is when if you get that team that 11 fit and in form with a striker as Mm. Tony's saying then you've got a really, really good team, I think. And I, I, it's kind of big picture, blue sky thinking type stuff when obviously we're saying this was their season, this tie is their season. If they're out, then that's a, the, the end of a terrible season. Of course, that's true. But I found myself, and this is easy for me because I'm not a Chelsea fan, but if I found myself thinking, actually, there are little seeds there of hope and positivity, it, it, despite it being a pretty lacklustre performance and, and
2: ultimately being beaten by a team of packed with experience who were in first gear probably. I'm not too sure about that or, or 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 if I am going to agree with you, I think it for me points towards the question as to why you got rid of Graham Potter with this tie coming up really because in terms of those seeds of positivity, although the results weren't going great for Graham Potter, he didn't have all of the players back that played last night, particularly some of the ones with big experience. He didn't have N'Golo Conte, obviously that's a big one, but there were some green shoots in some of those games mm-hmm. where they didn't get results. So, <sighs> You know, if that's the positivity to carry forward, you're almost thinking, well, well, we didn't need Frank Lampard to see that. We'd already seen it under Graham Potter. We we already felt, and we've covered it already on the podcast, that you're probably going to get rid of Graham Potter at the end of the season. But for me, it was one of those where I felt you needed to give him until the end of the season in not that many games to see if he might get something out of this squad. Or you sack the manager and you get in one of the plethora of high quality available coaches and you get them to take you into the tie with Real Madrid why you would get Frank Lampard to do it for me it, it made that decision kind of pointless but I think I take your point but I think some of the things Tom Roddy talked about
4: when we were talking about that change in manager and and, and the, giving them the time almost to get the decision right and also maybe having a proper assessment of the squad, you know I was talking to Martin Samuel last night about writing a piece and he's doing a piece which by the time you're listening you can read online and he decided to write about Carlo Ancelotti instead because he was kind of talking about Chelsea and what they need and he, he felt that they really need someone to really get a hold of them and really grip them and shake them up a bit and rile them up and really lift them in that sense and when you think about the Julian Nagelsmanns of this world are they that type of character but then Martin admitted you then go to who? Antonio Conte? Jose Mourinho? But But they're not the type of manager so that's where that's where I think the Chelsea board are at they've at this point now where they went for the young tactician Graham Potter that didn't work they bought all these players and they're now torn between do we Go Nagelsmann now or do we go big character
2: big guy but, two years shake them up scare the life out of them lift them but even that even that suggests to me they don't know what they're doing because the the problem at Chelsea was not the coach really it's the fact that the club currently is a mess the squad through the strategy of recruitment has become a mess has become far too many players to realistically coach and develop. You've got to try and rotate, especially when the team's out of form. Then you're looking to the pool of players and thinking, who's going to get me a result here? And you start chopping and changing. There's no consistency. And on top of it all, with respect you know, a lot of these players, the young ones that they brought in have not been there and done it, particularly no. at the highest level. It's not like you you spent 600 million pounds on proven quality. You've brought in kids, high potential kids, yes, but you're not going to go out and start blitzing the Premier League and well, the Champions League by buying Baddy and Ludrick, you know, and Enzo Fernandez. Well, yeah, highly rated, you know, I get it, high potential players, but you're not talking about people that have been there, won it, got the t-shirt.
3: It's difficult because there's and a lot of money spent on players that like Fafania and he's been injured but they still spent a lot of money on yeah. him Cucurella you know spent a lot of money on him does he look like a natural first teamer at Chelsea Mm-mm. not at all um so that's difficult um they've got massive decisions to make but i totally agree with tom there is a core of players that are good enough for Chelsea to make something happen they've i think there's lots of different ideas to think about that club but there is one thing for for sure: you're not going to be short of very good footballers, because mm, mm. whether I, some are ready or some are not, I think you have to find that balance. There, yeah. that there is but, enough I mean, talent there. Yeah, Sorry, after, Gregor, you go.
0: Uh, after spending six hundred million quid, you would hope that would be the case, though. Surely, Tony? Yeah, like, I, I think Gregor, there's yeah. far too much like people trying to justify what has gone on at Chelsea in the past eight months or whatever. Like you're saying, this is not Graham Potter's team. No, clearly not. It's not Frank Lampard's team. It's not his fault like this team looks disjointed it's the next man's team it's todd bowley's team it's the guy who's living in a fantasy land who was filmed saying we're going to win 3-0 and the future's bright before the game like that's who's that's that's who's responsible for what this chelsea team looks like just now yeah that's not the fault of any manager or coach and i like we we could go around the houses that i i think and i said beforehand if you were going to sack graham potter it had to be a a major upgrade and replacing with frank lampard was ludicrous so the, pro- the idea of getting a big uplift from Frank Lampard I think we're already seeing that it's not going to happen
4: Just on the subject of that experience point Tony you've made and the money spent I did think it was interesting and I wanted to ask both you and Tony Gregor about the moment when Koulibaly got injured because it was a kind mm-hmm. of five minutes of where the you know they're 1-0 they'd had a few counter-attacks they're kind of in the game and as I say in the office you know we were chatting about it and going this is they, they could nick nick a point here, mm. not nick a point, get an equaliser here. And you think about those players, and again, he's gone for Koulibaly. Why? Because he's played in the Champions League. He's mm. he played against Real Madrid almost certainly in his career. He's not gone for Kukureya. And there were two things that I thought were interesting. One, you had a player coming onto the pitch where you immediately thought, oh God, oh God, this isn't going to go well. Just purely because of the experience. Mm. But also, Tony, I found it interesting coming back to your point about fitness and sharpness and it's always interested me as a fan sometimes when you're watching the game because sometimes both as a pundit and a fan you want substitutions you want to see different players and sometimes a manager's reluctance to change is actually because to get that game sharpness to get in there and that was where the problem came wasn't it where Cucurella came in and he goes for that challenge and then he doesn't turn quite as quickly enough and Rodrigo spins him and Rodrigo's match Sharp he's been playing for 60 minutes at this point and he gets in behind him I wanted to ask like how difficult is it in those moments in, in any game to come on and hit that. Like, should we be criticising Cucurella for that? Or is it just bad luck that the experienced guy gets injured?
3: Well, well, there's a couple of things. If you take the first goal and you take the pe- the sending off uh, incident, mm. both times a player on the ball from Madrid isn't pressurised. Yeah. OK, so the moment that happens, then he gets his head up and he can find the pass or he, he sets uh, Rodrigo away and Chilwell gets sent off. They're things that... Why have your players not been able to get to your opposition's midfield quick enough to stop them it's a Liverpool problem that's where Liverpool suffered all year they can't stop teams in midfield getting on the ball and finding passes mm. once you eliminate players you're dead as a team now on the physical side which I think is really important I played my best football when I was at my fittest and my worst football when I was um, at my unfittest mm. okay they come hand in hand for me and I me and Q had a conversation in about Lukaku and what we would do with it and what we would do with him because obviously he's a Chelsea player next year I said straight away I'd get him back and make him the fittest I could in the pre-season to see if you could get something out of him because big centre forwards they look lazy ungainly awkward all these things when they're not at their fittest and I think Chelsea's team last night had at least four players that weren't on their peak condition and over 90 minutes you paid for it and they'll pay for it in the second leg as well.
0: On the Cucurella, you know, like it's going to be hard coming in coming into a game at the Bernabeu. Not that I know about that myself, unfortunately. <laughs> but like it's always hard adjusting to a game. But in my experience, if you come into a game, you err, you err on the side of caution. Mm. And what he did was the opposite. He stepped out, and his body shape was all wrong. When the the safe thing to do is to maintain shape, defensive shape, give yourself a few yards. If he does turn, and you you can keep pace with them uh, and Kukarella didn't do that so I don't think you could put that down to, to fitness issues um, that was a lapse of concentration and as a, as we've spoken about just as the disjointed nature of this team there's been so many chops and changes of mm. personnel team shape although they've started to settle on a three-man defense because Chilwell and James are back there's still a lot of a lot of chops and changes we mentioned Buddy Shealy I don't think he's even in the Champions League squad is he no no he's, no, no, he's oh. not so like it, they could have done with him and could have done with a
2: Bamyang too, to be perfectly unexpected. Greg, yeah, can I ask you?
3: A I just want to ask you a question. It's probably all for all three of us, really. Was really, could you still point the finger at Graham Potter because of his, how he used so many players in so many games that you, you created this scenario where so many players have, you know, take Raheem Sterling. You know, he was injured and he was in and out of the team, but he looks like he's the unfittest he's been to me for two or three years. If you look at him as just as him as an individual, and I think you can go for a few players at that team and you can point the, Graham, Graham, uh, the finger at Graham Potter for this because you use too many players at t- too often in games and changing your team around.
0: There were certainly occasions when you looked at the team sheet, of Chelsea's team sheet and thought, hmm, uh, I'm not sure what he's thinking here but you do have to like acknowledge that there were a hell of a lot of injuries too during yeah. his time at the club so some of those changes were enforced but towards the end of his time clearly you would have liked him to have kind of got somewhere closer to a settled team and it, it didn't seem to look really like there was much joined up thinking going on
2: Gregor, what was Ben Chilwell thinking?
0: Panic <laughs> <laughs> There is an argument to say when Cucurillo steps up he's got to kind of come round a little bit more you know, and narrow, narrow off the, the space yeah. But it happens very quickly, and I would say that there, you know there weren't really any other th- threats in the immediate area. Chilwell, the man outside them as well. I personally think it was it was Kukurella's mistake in the first place, and Chilwell's was desperately trying to rectify it, and he'll, he'll, he'll wish he could take the moment back. That's all you can say. It was a it was a red card, and he had to go naive maybe but I also Greg, think Greg sir, light,
2: I would have pulled him back as well. well
0: absolutely yeah you try and get something you try and get there's lit, a little bit of contact on him that's not enough to send them down and look, like, depends who you're playing against sometimes too the player will go down or not and Rodrigo took the spin and fell to the floor he's off
4: yeah well the so, funny the funny thing was was that I think the Koulibaly injury came from almost a, exactly the same incident and Koulibaly's kind of running with Rodrigo and he pulls his arm and I remember watching it thinking it's amazing that doesn't get pinged as a foul and then it literally happened. But obviously, because Chilwell was behind him and not in a 50 50
2: race, you know, you've got no chance. And then the players feeling the contact and going down. Chelsea failed to score, as you mentioned, Tony, four games in a row. First time since 1993, I think, that that has happened. And yet, Frank Lampard believes they can turn it round at Stamford Bridge.
3: Uh, is the tie over in your eyes? I think there's more chance of City getting knocked out by Bayern than Chelsea getting through. <laughs> Honestly? <laughs> now. City are three nil up and Cruz, and were brilliant. And of course I don't think they're gonna get knocked out because they're a much better team. Oh, which oh, are... well,
2: I got the kind of anecdote. <laughs> <Yeah>. okay.
3: <laughs> okay, yeah. So let's let's look at Chelsea. So what you need evidence to go, well, this is why this could happen. Mm. Is there anything you saw last night in previous games? that make you think that this Chelsea team can suddenly get at least, maybe at least three. Because I'm like you. I don't think Real Madrid are going to Stamford Bridge and not scoring. Yeah. They'll get a goal.
2: The yeah. only thing that I would say is that obviously Chelsea weren't that good. And, the hope, and obviously Real Madrid weren't either. So the only hope that I would have is that Real Madrid aren't that good in the next game either. And that possibly Chelsea can lift their performance massively in front of their own fans. Because ultimately you think if Ben Chilwell didn't get sent off are Chelsea possibly leaving the Bernabeu and this is a totally out of form Chelsea who can't hit a Barn door at the moment 1-0 down mm. on aggregate and that could have been very possible
3: I think Real Madrid are actually a little bit more suited and away games than they are at home they look like a team that can counter brilliantly quick with Valverde obviously Rodrigo mm, uh, Vinicius, Vinicius Junior, yeah. Benzema I think they're, they're suited to, to that style of play
2: and the other thing that i would say is i think tactically chelsea should change now for the next leg which is to play a 4-3-3 which uh, i think you'll probably say plays even more into real madrid's hands but i think they need they obviously need the goals and ultimately they still have a squad which is set up to play 4-3-3 the issue is the front man through the middle yeah who can you play off who you know you, you would need kai havertz to have one of the best games in his career um, because obviously you don't get that physicality from Jao Felix, although he looks to be the kind of, even though he's not scoring, he, he seems to be the kind of most active forward. And then Raheem Sterling's not going to play through the middle. I mean, it's, it's I'd tough. want to
3: go to a midfield and push Mason Mount in front, of like the diamond, and have Mason Mount around three up front. Diamond, oh, I see. Okay. I would want to do that way, because... I'm pretty sure away from home, obviously I haven't got the team sheet in front of me, but when Chelsea went 3-0 up in Madrid last time, Mason Mount was pivotal to the way they played that night. And even though he came on for a short period last night, he was the one that had he the did, chance yeah. that could have got got them level. Mm. Um, so I, I think Mount is quite an important player. I did a column with Tom uh, a few weeks back and we were talking about very important players Uh, who could be sold from the Premier League to another Premier League club. And I went, there'll be a whole list of clubs after Mount. Mm. There will be.
2: Okay. Do you see it happening in the second leg?
4: No. I mean, again, I'm slightly more philosophical in terms of Chelsea's... Not their chances in the tie, because obviously 2-0 up away from home in a Champions League tie is absolutely peak Real Madrid. They're just going to win probably 3-0 all on the counter-attack, aren't they, with Mm -hmm. being picked Mm. off. But I would say, from having watched lots of Chelsea, and we've talked lots about them... You know, you referenced the chance that Mount had. Um, João Felix was in on goal. You know, real lack of pace there, which surprised me early on. Sterling's chance in the first half. You know, they created chances. Look, I'm trying to find positives where yeah. there aren't many. But I, l- listen, stranger things have happened, have they? Maybe, Gregor? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do. Can
0: I just say as well? Like, look at look at who they brought on in this game. We brought on Mount. Chalaba and Gallagher, three Academy players after that six hundred million pound spent and Cucurella. I still can't get my head around what's happened at that club in the last eight or nine months. It's it's extraordinary. Like the waste. I'm not saying it's all gonna be a waste, but like it's the extravagance and the the way that the club's gone backwards in that time is will go down as one of the most remarkable periods in a, in a football club's history at the start of an ownership, like in Premier League history, I think.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the the biggest vanity job you've ever seen. Yeah, it's, yeah,
0: yeah. I was going to say, if you
2: guys have seen the film Babylon, which came out recently, which is all about the kind of excesses of Hollywood in its heyday, then yeah, it pretty much feels like Chelsea and Todd Bowley have taken the Hollywood approach uh, to a Premier League football club. and. Thankfully they've got very deep pockets That's all I can say Otherwise I think that football club Might be in a bit of trouble Anyway, let's talk about another club with deep pockets, Manchester City. They took a big step towards going through, as we mentioned already, um, into the semifinals of the Champions League. Great performance, beating Bayern Munich at the Etihad Stadium. Three goals to nil, obviously. I'm not even going to say inevitably anymore because there's no point checking. Erling Haaland on the score sheet. <laughs> 45th goal of the season in, in all competitions, Tony. That makes him the highest scorer at a Premier League club in a single campaign since the Premier League began 30 years ago, going ahead of Mo Salah and Ruud van Nistelrooy. Best striker we've seen in England? Well, he's only been here
3: less than a year, so it's... All right, best season. (laughs) Um, Well, Clive Allen got 49 one year, didn't he? Uh, Done unbelievably well. And at least I don't have to get asked to do a column on Our City, A Better Team, without him anymore. (laughs) So I'm delighted by that uh, because I found that, you know, uh, that idea which many people had spoke about, uh, which I just didn't get. He's an extraordinary player and he's improving. And if he improves again, because he's still a a very young man, which I expect him to, then what sort of player are we going to see in a year's time? Because he's at a football club that just create chances... Um, in many different ways, his athleticism is extraordinary. Agility, just watching him move his feet at the weekend to get a goal, and then play a part in assists as well against Bayern Munich. Um, I've already seen an improvement from him mm. when he was at Bayern. Uh, Bushier Dortmund. I all I already think he's a better player now than he was at Dortmund, and they invested all that money into him because. He is growing with this team.
2: I think he's a better player than we saw at the start of the season. Yeah. And I think he scored yeah. seven goals in the first three games or something. Mm. And even now you can say, you know, and there, were, there was a lot of, well, why didn't he get on the ball as much and why isn't he bringing other people into play That's as a much need to. Early, early on? Yeah, But I'm saying he's doing that more and more. You can see those elements yeah. coming into his game and the goals aren't really fading away either. So I totally agree with you. We could see a, an incredible, I mean... Well, generational player soon. Ask
3: this question: Have we all put this question to ourselves? Who is capable of stopping him? What type of defender? Because of his being six foot five and so quick and strong and direct and has an incredible desire, I don't know a defender in world football mm. I could go, go man, mark him. Can and stand on him and just make sure he doesn't the, the, player is that, there one?
2: The, the player that came to my head immediately was Ruben Diaz who obviously plays for the same team <laughs>
1: <laughs> so in we're not going to see actually yeah. Yeah. We're, we're yeah. Not, but Ruben
2: Diaz is the one that came in terms of and again there was part of me that says is he good enough that's the only thing I said. I was like Ruben Diaz, Well, he's got the sp- he's got enough pace and he's got enough movement and mobility as a centre back. He clearly brings a- the same type of aggression to his role as Erling Haaland brings at the other end of the pitch. But then I thought, in the penalty box, could he stay with him? And that's the only thing that comes into my mind. He probably is in terms of the current best defenders. He's probably a level above, you know, being marked. You know, I just don't see anyone that can stop him, Gregor.
0: No, I mean, uh, the thing that's actually uh, consistently amazed me is his, his work rate and his mentality, actually, because, as we discussed, he's so often completely out of the game and his biggest task is is pressing and hounding and harrying opposition defenders and goalkeepers in this game. I mean, this time when he closed down Jan Sommer, the Bayern keeper, and nearly scored from that, that's kind of epitomised his, his ridiculous work rate. And that's like, as I say, that's all he does for vast ways of the game. He doesn't touch the ball or if he does, it's like very fleetingly or to score a goal. So those two things combined are the things that are like, have really wowed me in his time. Obviously, the goals are ridiculous, but I thought for a long period it was unsustainable that he was going to like be a player of his stature and his standing and his quality and be satisfied playing such a little part. But it look, if, if they win the treble... <laughs> and he scores fifty odd goals. Then I think he'll probably be all right with it.
2: There was part of me watching this game, looking at Manchester City and the the chances that they created, particularly the way that they managed to apply pressure to Sommer, who you mentioned, or already the issues that he had with the ball at his feet and balls into the box. But then, of course, quite clearly, Upper Mcarno, Upper uh, who made a couple of errors. And I, I think it was one of those where. You look at the game and everyone goes, oh, that's a Rick and that's a Rick. And that, and they don't really look at what's going into creating those moments. Because yeah. actually, I think Manchester City put so many traps, covered so many passing angles, but so, and, and then applied the pressure to the worst players on the ball to win it higher up the pitch. I actually thought, you know, for the football analysts out there, it was great to see a kind of what's the way to describe it Um, the kind of proactive attacking defence if you like you know and the ability to then have four or five bodies going into final third once you win the ball back you know it was just it was beautiful to see and the way the you know I think I tweeted about how fluid Manchester City were on the evening as well because you looked at the formations you went okay it's a 3-2 4-1 was it at times something like that one was it 3 2 3 I don't know what my numbers are but yeah and then you looked at it and it looked like a 3-2-3-2 at times and then they dropped off and it was like a 4-4-2 at times and it was just and it was just a 4-3-3 and I was watching it and I was like this is sensational this is just like a chameleon football team And, you know, ultimately you watch that and go, you have to be so well drilled. The players have to be so tactically intelligent to realise when the ball's in a particular place, when a player's got the ball this is the shape that we need to be in. And it was like it was honestly, you know, aside from the game and you can say Bayern weren't great, that was something special to behold. It was relentless, it certainly was. I mean,
4: Tony, you talked about it before with fitness with Chelsea players and you mentioned this off air earlier about Jack Grealish and looking as fit as you've ever seen him. That is what Pep Guardiola gets out of his players as well. As well as improving them like Erling Haaland, he gets them to be the absolute peak of their condition, doesn't he? The things you talked about, Hugh, we saw it against Leipzig and they're just taking it forward. I thought it was interesting Ruben Diaz talking before the game saying that this is this is the moment in the season we get the taste for it I think was his quote and um, like so often in my life I found myself thinking oh god Gregor Robertson's going to be right because he's talked (laughs) all season about the City juggernaut and it'll come and I was are
0: you listening? yeah no
4: No, but I'm being serious the first time when I thought in big picture as well about the title race and about this team I thought oh god he's right because they just look absolutely relentless. I would say just two two things on two players, other players that I wanted to mention. Rodri, as well as scoring a brilliant goal, I think has been absolutely totemic for them this season. He's been absolutely superb. James Gearbrand's football newsletter a few weeks ago focused on uh, Willock at Newcastle. But within there, uh, he had a statistic about midfielders in general using something called the Davis model, which is created by a data scientist to assess players' effectiveness compared to those who play in the same role. So you get a kind of ranking... Um, And of players in the Premier League, Rodri had a score of 5.84, which was by far and away the best. Mm. So to give you some context, Kevin De Bruyne was 4.36. And I just think he's been absolutely superb. Another player that I find kind of fascinating, and when you think about that kind of Pep bringing people on, is Nathan Ake. I mean, that was one of the few transfers where City have signed a player and I've gone, really? But his evolution as a player, and to, to a point now where... He's actually a really important player in the starting lineup. I don't know whether you guys agree, Gregor, as a defender. I, I don't know whether you Absolutely. agree. Like, but his, his growth he's a as a player play. as well, his composure on the ball—you know—it's incredible.
0: He's a—he's yeah. a, a better player than I thought he was, and the, part of that may be to do with the, his improvement under Pep at City and playing in a better team. But I'd never seen it. I'd never seen the you know, kind of clamour. Of, you know, Chelsea tried to bring him back at one stage. I hadn't really seen it as an elite level kind of player, but this season he's been mm. absolutely outstanding. And it is it is about the adaptability. The thing we're talking about here is so many players, use the word chameleon there, Hugh, so many players who are so adaptable. You know, you can put, you can put Rodri into that. He's dropped into the back four at times. Stones is, we're seeing a new side of Stones stepping into midfield. Akanji can play on, on the right almost like a fullback. Aki is a fullback or a centre-half. Bernardo Silva, I've not mentioned him yet. He's like, yeah, you know, Pep said, I think Pep said after this game he's, he's one of the, the most intelligent players he's ever coached, or the best players he's ever coached, because those pass—you're talking about those, you know, closing off passing lanes and stuff. He leads a lot of that too, and he can—he's adaptable too. He can play in so many positions, and when they change shape, he moves from wide on the right to playing more narrow. De Bruyne goes up front to play like when to join Haaland when it's a four-four-two. They really are like hitting form ominously. I think it's, their aggregate scoreline. I was reading is thirty-four <laughs> to four in in the last nine games, nine wins in a row.
3: Every aggregate. Like, and and the
0: the last thing, sorry, they, sorry, they uh they won this game with forty four percent of the ball too. That's the mm. other thing. They're now content to almost drop into like a like I think uh, Hamza's piece on online today said it was like like almost like a back six. So when they're mm. when they're up it's like six two two two. So that's another kind of yeah, how often do you see City uh, with 44% of the ball. Yeah. I know they're playing against another kind of European giant, but even still, and to win 3-0 that way, it's like we're seeing new sides to them.
2: Just very quickly on Ake, uh, just to bring it back there for a second, Tom, It's it just for, for all of you to watch it, I went to the, um, the Arsenal game in the FA Cup um, where Saka didn't basically get a touch of the ball. Ake marked him out of the game. But actually, if you watch the Bayern game as well, what they tend to do is they basically managed to get six players onto his side of the pitch. All he has to do is hold his winger up for a moment and then suddenly he's got another centre-back just behind him and then you get two midfielders coming across and the winger is forced backwards every single time. And it's just... I I don't even know how they do it, but it's just like forcing you up a dead-end street and Ake's waiting for you at the end of it. Like, it's absolutely fantastic tactical work. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. No, I was
3: going to say, Hugh, and again... Something that always amazes me about Pep Guardiola. And when he was at Bayern, he talked about Philip Lahm, who played midfield and sometimes mainly right back for him. And he always spoke about his intelligence as a player. He said, Philip Lahm is one of the most intelligent players I've ever worked with. And he loves intelligence in players. You know, what you've talked about there Nathan Aki, Bernardo Silva, what Greg has just mentioned. You can go through his team, he loves intelligence in a player it's not all about course tactically technically they but he wants them to be really savvy and really smart it was interesting the week before that he commented on Cole Walker about mm-hmm. not being able to do the John Stones role because you know he had John's intelligence so to him intelligence as a footballer is really important if you're going to achieve the ultimate goals yeah you,
0: you have to re- throw in greel sorry you have to throw in Grealish there yeah. i mean like Grealish was the ultimate maverick and now he's completely on the ball as what he has to do out of possession. And like to the point where he's even, you know, pressing winning the ball back and creating goals from those kind of situations. He's he's really got on board with what he has to do out you know, out of possession as to be in this team basically. And that's he's another player who's kind of we're seeing a new side mm. side as well.
3: What are the other managers in Europe thinking and and, and Arteta thinking when they're watching this Man City now? They're thinking that's not the same team as the start of the season.
4: They're thinking what I was thinking. Gregor's bloody Robertson's <laughs> right. They're coming. The juggernaut's coming. There's still a,
2: there's still a part of me that, that was watching them in the Champions League this week and thinks it might be so important for that group of players, a lot of them as well, um, who've been there and kind of failed in this competition. And I wonder with it, you know if they're going to play Real Madrid in the semi-final, whether the focus goes on that mentally, whether rotation comes in ahead of those games. And we, and we see Man City drop points in another match. Look, I still don't think they're going to win every game between here and the end of the season. But certainly watching them against Bayern, you think they've got a great chance, probably a better chance than ever, to win the Champions League because the other English side's nowhere near good enough apart from no. City, obviously. You've got, you know, several Italian teams left. You've got Portuguese team left. The greats of Europe by Munich clearly aren't at it Um, Paris Saint Germain already gone. They weren't at it, you know. And you kind of think, is this Man City's year? And and how content would they be as a football club in winning the Champions League? You know, even if it means they don't win an FA Cup, even if they don't win the Premier League. So, I, I still kind of think.
3: How did Brentford beat them at the Etihad?
2: I think they're all. I think they're all thinking about the World Cup. Honestly, that was the last game before the World Cup, right? And I think City, who had more players went to the World Cup than any other club side in the world. I think a lot of their players were kind of thinking, I've got to get the plane tomorrow and, and that was maybe a bit of a distraction. Mm. Obviously, Also, they
0: hit Ivan Tony. I was about to say, and
2: Ivan Tony was kind of galva- galvanised by being left yeah. out of the England squad. Yeah.
0: We uh, should quickly say that like Bayern did have, you know, although the, the, this wasn't peak Bayern, it was nip and tuck until uh, Roger's goal. And you know, moments beforehand, Musiala had a great chance. It was brilliantly blocked by uh, Ruben Diaz. And then it was Musiala who was turned by Roger at the other end to... For Man City to take the lead, so and even then, Sani, you know, Sani went through in the second half. Had a had a good chance that was saved. They still had. They still created openings. They will create openings. It, look, but
2: I they won't. They the, won't beat City I can't by see three. Coming back, no. No. So I don't. I don't have to ask. Is this tie over? I think it's done. Um, and, yeah. and a couple of things to keep an eye on, which is basically, will Erling Haaland get any better? And City to just be kind of metronomic until the end of the season. They are definitely getting better. And. Um, you know, the, the, during the fallow period of the season, there was there was a thought that is he kind of saving his players' legs a little bit, his best players' legs, because remember the bench was probably better than the starting eleven for a good couple of months there, and that was the point where people thought, City I've absolutely no chance," including me. And I kind of give them more of a chance now, but I still think Arsenal win the Premier League since they've been knocked out of Europa. They're going to be playing one game a week. They're not in the FA Cup. I still think they've got more than enough in the legs to, to win virtually every game, if not every game between here and the end of the season. So um, I still think it's going to be a big task for it's Manchester more, City.
3: It's more interesting to see who'd win out Amane and Sane. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: mean, yeah, I, I kind of <laughs> whatever happened I, I watched that and thought, oh, Misfits Boxing, yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you miss the story, um, Sadio Mane, former Liverpool forward, uh, clobbered Leroy Sane, the former Manchester City winger, um, punched him in the face, apparently. I'm just reading on our screens above us that he is expected to apologise at Bayern Munich training a little bit later on. But it happens, Tony, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ever punched anyone? Yeah.
3: Um, not in football, no. <laughs>
4: yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of uh, reading all about Bayern, and that is another thing, isn't it? The City are so in sync at the minute as a club in general, whereas Bayern changed the manager. Yes, they've got Thomas Tuchel in. But, um, you should be able to read as well later on the Times probably now while you're listening to this Constantine Eckner, who's our guy man in Germany has written all about what, what's going on at Bayern and whether they can turn it around because obviously for them a, a club of that stature you know we talk about Real Madrid losing a Champions League quarterfinal first leg 3-0 never mind a player dust up that's pretty disastrous so for them that's a pretty big big hmm. point in their season
2: I was just watching the camera because kind of where the dugouts are it kind of goes in and out of shot depending on where the ball is on the pitch and every time it went Um, to the near side and Thomas Tuchel basically came back into into vision it was just like arms flailing around furiously I mean he was just furious for the entire match and I did read a little bit this morning about kind of the size of the task that he's got at Bayern Munich but ultimately there was kind of me uh, kind of there was a part of me that almost reflected on on this defeat and if it continues for Bayern Munich that they aren't going to challenge really strongly for the Champions League and I know they won it not too long ago you know As football changes, as the the European Super League comes back to the table in another form, obviously being one of the big clubs that was completely against it. And I know they've got a different ownership model that means fans are far more involved. But you kind of sit there and think, how's the Bundesliga? How is a club like Bayern Munich going to get its competitive advantage back? against the likes of of Manchester City because it's not going to be, in terms of finances, you kind of think if they're not going to do something that radically gets them lots more money back into the club, then where are Bayern Munich going to be? Because I think one of the strange things is, yes, we've had an Italian resurgence, but we kind of need the big five nations to have some very strong teams for Mm. European football to be worth it. Otherwise, it basically becomes... Don't say it. I thought you were going to say Super League, don't say it. No, it it will basically become the Premier League with some European clubs attached, which is not what we want. One of the best things about this season has been Benfica, has been Napoli. You know, you, you want European football to be about Europe and to have strong contenders from across the continent. Bayern Munich have been such a constant in that regard in terms of Germany's representation that... Um, for me I, I kind of wasn't expecting this and I'm kind of watching their squad and watching what's happening to Tuchel and thinking how's he going to improve this team and I don't see it you know they're not going to compete with the biggest clubs for the best signings at this point in time you know they might get a Sadio Mane who leaves a club you know on a free transfer or for a minimal fee if he's got a year left on his deal but but are they going to go out and get the best players in world football like for Bayern Munich to not be in the conversation for me is kind of strange you know and, and Anyway, that's where they are right now. Read Constantine Ekner, who I'm sure knows a lot more about it than me. That's the Champions League wrapped up. Um, we got more to talk about next. We'll be talking about Leicester City and Dean Smith. We'll talk about Jude Bellingham's future and reflect on that huge game in the National League. But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, make sure you're subscribed.
0: As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy.
1: There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
2: Thank mm-hmm. you. So, Dean Smith has been named as Leicester City boss until the end of the season. He obviously left Norwich earlier this season. He had his previous spells at Aston Villa and Brentford as a manager. Leicester in massive trouble um, after their defeat by Bournemouth at home. Two points from safety with eight games left. Strangely, uh, I guess a lot has been made about the backroom staff that Dean Smith brings with him. Craig Shakespeare is his assistant manager. He was part of Claudio Ranieri's backroom staff when Leicester Won the league in 2016. He then replaced the Italian as their manager. But also in the coaching lineup, uh, John Terry, the former England captain, uh, who was with Dean Smith at Aston Villa, and the club's current first team coaches, Adam Sadler and Mike Stowell. The first game in charge for Leicester is away at the Premier League champions Manchester City on Saturday so it pretty much couldn't be harder in terms of his first match in charge. But really, I've got to ask you guys, whether you think this is a good decision and and how much it improves Leicester's chances of staying up, Tom Clark? It's so difficult to answer simply yes or no, it's a good decision.
4: It is a good decision in the sense that they looked like they were free-falling towards relegation, and so bringing someone in like Dean Smith, who has at least got experience you know, at the level of a club like Leicester, he's managed other big clubs before, He's managed in relegation scraps before. Yes, that's a good decision, but it's it's a good decision in the wider context of some more very bad and mad decisions. I think at Leicester, you know, I've been speaking to Charlotte Dunker, who's our Midlands correspondent, and the kind of rhythms of these managerial changes. And you're speaking to a one minute, and then you know some of our other reporters suggesting that they you know they want Rafa Benitez to come in, but he doesn't want to move to Leicester, and it's this complete lack of plan. So you go through this entire process of sacking a manager like Brendan Rodgers, where you've maybe waited too long to sack him. Then go through a process of, is it Jesse Marsh? Is it Rafa Benitez? Is it others? And then you end up with Dean Smith as interim. And then you're going, well, that's a good call. Good call, solid pair of hands, etc, etc. But it's a good call in the context of the chaos that came before it. So, so to answer your question yes it's a good decision it's a good move but it's only a good move because of all the nonsense that came before it and i mean nothing against dean smith but i think they're in real trouble because i don't think this is a managerial appointment that kind of stops a bit of the rot that's kind of set in and a bit of it feels like freefall and as you say um got manchester city so big big troubles i think ahead
3: yeah i i think uh, it's been going on for a long time the downfall of Leicester. um Last summer was a weird one. Casper Smichael leaving the club, and he was a you know served eleven years there, and he just went without any really recognition from the club, and that was strange. And then seeing Vardy be everything that Vardy's not, he's basically been a bit part player, scored one Premier League goal, you know, a real huge character in the team. No, that's nothing. Nothing's happened, and okay, you could argue that. Well, he's been in the outside, and he hasn't been performing, scoring goals. Then you go. Well, then there's Albrighton moved on, another big character at the football club. They've had transfers. The goalkeeper Danny Ward, who took Michael's place, has ended up losing his place. It feels like everything Leicester have done this year, and that's without all the injuries, because they mm. have had a, a, a wholesale changes in many different positions. I just found. You no, know, there are some great things that have happened. Harvey Barnes has got a lot of goals this year. Madison's played really well at times. You know, done really well, and yet this team has been in freefall. That you know, I can only assume that the atmosphere is terrible at Leicester. I can only assume that because a lot of it doesn't add up. How this team has got himself has got himself second from bottom in the Premier League do you think Dean Smith
2: can get something out of them is it just going to be a new voice a new face to give you some new ideas that might see them jump up the league
3: well I think Craig Shakespeare will play a big part because he obviously will know a lot of these players and he's been working at Leicester before and all, he'll be the eyes for Dean Smith John Terry's interesting because I did laugh I, I, I said to somebody I was working on radio with said, why don't you do a poll when, when Lampard got the job I said ask Chelsea fans what, who would they prefer Terry or Lampard to be given that interim job and John Terry come out quite clearly this is before Lampard you know when had w- been announced but he hadn't had a game um, John Terry's a really interesting one because he's quite silent in many ways he doesn't he doesn't feel like he's the captain leader when he's at a football club and he look I'm only going on I mean, I've met John on two or three occasions and talked to him. But he's quite a distant guy. He's quite very discreet. You wouldn't think that John's the type of guy he is when you meet him. And yet he was the leader, the captain of Chelsea for all these years. And you think he walks into that dressing room, he's going to lay like, some laws down. But from what I, hear, what I hear, he's not like that. He's far more standoffish and watches and then you know, gives his, his side of how he feels what the team is doing. He, so it's a really weird dynamic what Leicester have put together. Good luck to him because um, as much as Gregor had talked about Chelsea in a real mess, I don't think anybody's been in a bigger mess in the Premier League than Leicester this year.
0: I kind of agree with Tony. I think that a big part of these uh, changes is about changing the atmosphere. And Dean Smith is kind of well-regarded. He's a, I think he's a good guy. I know people have played for him and enjoyed it and think he's, as I say, a good guy and very competent as well. So that's a good start point when the atmosphere is bad. And I think, as, as referenced, Shakespeare's kind of knowledge of the club and being there before will be important. It's still impossible to call. Like, we've been saying it for weeks. And I think we just look at the state of the Premier League right now. <laughs> it's remarkable. So Thampton, uh, I've got manager to the end of the season. Leicester, I've got an interim manager to the end of the season. Leeds, I've got an interim manager to the <laughs> end of the season. Crystal Palace, I've got an interim manager to the end of the season. Chelsea, I've got an interim manager to the end of the season. I think Bournem- I think Gary O'Neill got a longer term contract, didn't he, at Bournemouth? Yes, he did, um, yeah. And so, so did Deitch. But like, how many clubs just panicked and looked around, had no succession plan? But actually, the one-, one club I would give credit to, bizarrely in this, and you'll think I'm mad, is Southampton, because they had a plan. It didn't work but they had a plan. They put a lot of thought into appointing Nathan Jones. Clearly it was a disaster, but at least they had some thought process about it. Everyone else has been flapping around in the dark looking for someone who is faintly qualified to manage a Premier League club to keep them keep them in the league. It's absolutely ludicrous. Like I'm sure like I know running a football club is difficult and clearly it's this is a problem that's afflicted a lot of clubs this season, particularly because it's been so concertinaed in the bottom half of the league, and that's made more clubs feel like they're. Premier League status is in peril, but there's been some really bad stewardship of Premier League football clubs this year.
4: It is fascinating, isn't it? How we've now got to, you know, we've always had these managers for a long time in the Premier League the kind of Mark Hugheses, the Sam Allardyces, the Mm. firefighters, but they'd always get three and a half year deals when they'd come in, wouldn't they? And then they'd get sacked (laughs) next season. It'd be a great payoff. But it's amazing how these managers are now, you know, the the, the negotiation is it's six months, it's three months, it's to the end of the season, it's interim. And and we've now got this whole different breed. And as you say, Gregor, it, it does feel that it's almost part of a lack of a plan but the idea is that it's part of a plan thinking forward so i.e., we don't need to give them to beyond the end of the season i just wanted to shout out as well um aston villa if you're talking about plans and you know making changes they made a change early with steven gerrard and massively reaping the rewards as henry Winter wrote this week talking about Unai Emery up into seventh is it now Yeah, you know and think maybe at the start of the season you'd have been thinking they might have been in position of Leicester you know a big club with badly managed who've Mm. gone the wrong way but they made good decisions acted quickly and then they get the rewards whereas that's why I come back to Leicester you think about that there's no plan and I don't really understand what the plan was with sacking Rogers in the first place
3: Southampton went went after Jesse Marsh. He demanded a longer contract. They didn't get the deal through. Then he goes to Leicester, and then that deal fell apart. And what Tom was saying there is that clubs are going, we're not going to give these guys longer deals. They come in under our terms because every club at any level gets 100 applicants at least for a job. They do. You know, if you're commentary city tomorrow, you'd get a whole host of names putting their name to it because people want to be involved in football. But Jesse Marsh has took two jobs where he's basically been offered it, but he's refused it because of the length of the contract.
0: The thing is that it's also kind of jarring to me this season is that the people we're talking about here are, I think, I would personally say are not qualified for the jobs. Like, is. Would grass Gracia be offered Leeds' job at any other juncture in the season? Would Dean Smith, who just was just sacked by mm. Norwich in the Championship, would Ruben Telles? I know he's like a guy who came from the back room Telles, uh, that's, that's, that's how Selles, bad, it, that's yeah, how bad so he is <laughs> You don't even no, know yeah. his name. <laughs> would Frank Lampard? God damn it! <laughs> like it's mental. That's what I'm saying. They're 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 struggling to find people who are qualified. To be Premier League managers at this stage of the season. There's been, when they've looked overseas, when Leeds looked, when people have looked at Arnie Slot, I think his name is in, in the Dutch league, they don't want to come because they're in a good position and they know that at the end of the season, they'll, be, they'll wait and see who stays up and they'll probably have, there's a group of managers who will probably be in the running for several Premier League jobs. But to come now is like a massive shot in the dark. Are you going to keep them up? and then you're a championship manager.
2: I totally agree with you, Gregor. And I'd have to say, I was amazed to see Dean Smith. Now, I'm not amazed in terms of there's no one else. I heard, you know, Leicester fans, some Leicester fans saying, you know, I think it's a terrible decision. Others saying, you know, it's a really positive decision. Uh, uh, You know, I don't dislike Dean Smith. I just don't think he's a Premier League manager. And I think it's a huge risk. Now, obviously, if there was no one else to take the job, then fair enough. You know, he's he's at a certain level. And it's a pretty good level in terms of, for me, top half, maybe even top six championship manager. But, um, you know, based on what we saw in his last job, i uh, uh, even at Villa, by the way, who, you know, if the goal line technology was working against Sheffield United, you know, Villa would have got relegated straight away and they wouldn't be seventh in the Premier League right now. They'd probably be, you know, seventh in the championship, you know, so for me, you know, when Dean Smith returns in a permanent job, it will be in the championship. He gets a great opportunity here to show that he's still got something at this level, but um, it's a huge risk for me. It's a huge risk. By the
0: way, I also missed uh, Christian Stellini.
2: Yeah, Stellini from Spurs, yeah. I think Tottenham almost wrote their season off with that appointment. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot. (laughs) In a word, just, you know, got to make a prediction from this point in time. Do you think Leicester are staying up? No. Wow, Gregor? That's hard. Oh, here Uh, he comes. He said one word, (laughs) Gregor. He said one word.
0: Okay, yes.
2: Yeah, I think I'm going to have to say yes Not based on Dean Smith But just based on firepower They've got the fixtures as well like I was
4: these. looking like after yeah. this I was looking and thinking Just before I made that prediction I thought sod it I'm going to go with it And plus Tony said no So it doesn't look bad if I copy <laughs> him But you know They've got they've got Wolves at home Leeds away Everton at home Fulham away The four games after this weekend So you know If he gets them in some sort of shape Then those fixtures give him the chance
2: Right, not long to go on the podcast, five or so minutes. So let's quickly talk about uh, another couple of stories that we've had for you this week. Uh, A couple of exclusives in the Times when it comes to Jude Bellingham's future. Liverpool, looking at alternative targets, they've decided the scale of their summer rebuild precludes a move for the England midfielder. And Real Madrid making Jude Bellingham their top transfer target this summer. Uh, after a meeting between senior figures at the club and representatives acting for the England midfielder. Manchester City, apparently now the main rivals for Bellingham's signature to the Spanish club. So some great, you know, great horizons for Jude Bellingham. Could be playing at a massive club, Real Madrid, uh, that is, next summer. (laughs) Um, £130 million surprise tag. Tony, what do you think should happen with Jude Bellingham's career next?
3: It was interesting chatting earlier about intelligence of players and Jude Bellingham... If you listen to him talk and what he did, going as a kid to Dortmund and taking his family with him and fitting in brilliantly, not with any hip cups at all, he's clearly an intelligent man, young man, 19 years old. If I was him and I was thinking who was going to improve me, I'd probably go at City because of what we talked about earlier with City players and our working under Pep Um, just takes you to a new level. I mean, he's an extraordinary talent anyway, uh, it's very hard because looking beyond Real Madrid is nearly impossible nine times out of ten and you could probably put Barcelona in that bracket even though they probably won't be in this market I think he could do both he could end up at both in some way because he's young enough you know who at well, 19. Where, where would you go first? well I'd, I'd definitely go to Guardiola first yeah? I think yeah because I think I mean look Real Madrid are a fantastic football club but a lot of ageing players that I do think that City have the capability to do what Real Madrid have done, conquer Europe on a regular basis. I do think they have that.
4: it be a hell of a double transfer, won't it, when Bellingham and Haaland go from City to Real Madrid in about five <laughs> years' time. They've won it all at City and then they move on. I mean, it'll be astronomical. The first billion pound double transfer is terrifying thought. But I mean, it is interesting, Hugh, and I wanted to just briefly come back to Paul Joyce's original exclusive about Liverpool. We've talked so much, particularly of late, about PR In football these days and I do think it's a very savvy move from Liverpool to kind of step back in a quite public way you know with this story and kind of go no not for us because it's smart in a a broader sense you know I do I'd be interested to know what Tony thinks as a fan whether you know obviously sad about the idea of not getting Bellingham but the idea of getting other players instead and making more sensible decisions Mm. but also the other thing is you as a Manchester United fan you've suffered this in many summer transfer windows the whole going after a player and being beaten to them, you know, because yeah. ultimately, they, if they'd have been in this race as a three-horse race with City and Real Madrid, they would have been beaten. Oh, wow. And I don't care how persuasive Jordan Henderson is, yeah. the, you know, they would have been. So I think it's very smart from Liverpool on two levels, this this kind of move at this stage in the season, pre-empting it, stepping back and saying, top player,
2: not for us. I do think it was smart. I, I do think it also manages the fan base in terms of the disappointment exactly. that you're exactly. exactly. But also in terms of the, the spending, because I think that's an interesting thing. Even if you miss out on Bellingham, right? There's going to be people saying, well, we had the money for Bellingham, so why don't we go and spend £100 million on another player? You know, let's get this one next. You know, I think in terms of managing the expectations of the fans, when it comes to how much money Liverpool can spend on this rebuild, I think that's really important because ultimately, um, I, 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 you know, I don't want to be harsh on the Liverpool fans. I remember being called harsh on the Everton fans when I said, look, you've run out of money and it's going to be a hard few years for you and that's just the, the reality of the situation obviously Liverpool haven't run out of money but you know the reality will hit for some fans some already know it that They can't spend at that very high level that other clubs do, and they're going to have to get back to what has made them so successful, which is finding those deals, finding those diamonds, doing things a little bit differently. Maybe another academy player, you know. And for me, the squad has been set up really well in terms of those young players. So it might just be about time, not even money, uh, to get Liverpool back to where they have been under Jurgen Klopp at the very high point. Because there are some excellent players that they've signed. We all know the young players that they've got there, and and some of the exciting forward players. It's now just, can we focus in on maybe another centre-back, maybe a a couple of full-backs to supplement what we've already got? And then, of course, the big midfield rebuild, who goes out of the club and who comes in. But, you know, is it going to be a £300 million summer for Liverpool? No, it's not. You know, And ultimately, that's, I think, something that that all the fans are going to have to just take on the chin.
3: As good as Bellingham is, I don't think he's the absolute needed player at this moment I think they have to get ball winners back into their midfield because they lack that That we talked about the pressure on back fours that has come for having a midfield that weren't as com- competitive, competitive as what they've had before, I think that's really important for Liverpool because Liverpool play a style where you have to win the ball back
4: you talk about winning the ball back I think the interesting thing about the Jude Bellingham conversation and the, the rumours around what club he's going to go to is the knock-on effect on what it might have for another player in Declan Rice because surely there's another kind of market mm. just slightly below that maybe like 40 million less where there's going to be more teams in there who might want him more who might need him more you mm. talk about Liverpool maybe Manchester United Arsenal as well we believe are in the race yeah. for Declan Rice that to me is a far more interesting battle as to where oh, he goes
3: also and I think this is a Liverpool way of thinking, and it should be the way, because Fergie was very much like this as well, is don't ever go for a player that thinks he's doing you a favour to come to you. You know, because I think you have to want a player desperate say, I want to play for this manager, this football club. And if you know you're going to get that with your club, that's the one you go after.
0: Gregor, what do you think of
3: this whole situation?
0: I think that Liverpool are kind of following what we expect of them. They're not, they're not a club that gets drawn into bidding wars or huge battles and tussles and tugs of war that's what manchester united have done <laughs> it's not it's not really liverpool's forty and i think probably like from a logical standpoint you know they're, if they don't make the champions league they're going to be short another 40 odd million pounds the scale of the overhaul that they need is would ultimately make it a logical decision to not put all your eggs in one basket if if i was bellingham like i, I agree with tony it's it's about going to city and working with Pep Guardiola, it's the most, te- it's the team that's the kind of the most tranquil, if that's the right word, it's like the, the most sort of stable stable and steady and yeah. and yeah, you know, its future is going to be uh, competing always. Um, I, but, but that also makes it as a fan and a neutral a little bit unpalatable. Uh, you know, it kind of almost a change of tack from City. They're spending 100 million on Jack Grealish. Uh, they're throwing, I know it's a, a nominal fee, in, <laughs> relatively speaking, for Haaland, but throwing enormous wages at Haaland. And it'd be, you know, a huge fee for Bellingham as well. It, it does start to get a little bit unpalatable. But I think from Bellingham's point of view, and if you're an England fan, uh, which you'll know I'm not, um, <laughs> it, I would say but, work with Guardiola as well. We've just spoken, we've just waxed lyrical about what he's done to to so many players and you'd hate as well you'd love to think what um, you could possibly do with Bellingham too
2: I just think Bellingham is so ambitious that you're looking at Real Madrid setting themselves up with the midfield of the future to replace uh, Casemiro's already gone but then Cruz and Modric coming towards the end you've got Camavinga there already you've got Schuermeni you've got Valverde you add a Bellingham to that, they might sit there for a decade, winning trophy after trophy after trophy. Why wouldn't you want to be an integral part of the future of Real Madrid? It's such a difficult thing to say no to.
4: I think you're right, but you're you know we talked about savvy and intelligence. You know these guys, and I've talked about PR. I was only I was half I was only half joking about the haaland Bellingham double transfer to Real Madrid, like you know. I don't think Erling Haaland is going to be at Manchester City for the rest of his no. career I think he sees it as like conquering European football world football I want to play in every league I want to win everything yeah. at every club in a similar way to Guardiola as a coach he wants to coach at every league every top club and win everything he possibly can and I wouldn't be surprised if Bellingham's thinking the same thing and map it out like that I'll go five years, six years at City try and win the lot and then I'll get my move to La Liga yeah and maybe onwards and finish with a couple of years in Italy. Yeah, Lovely I, job.
2: I also think Bellingham's enjoyed leaving England, and I think there is a detachment from not playing for one of the big English clubs in terms of how the fans treat you, but also in terms of the pressure from the media. Um, just being out of the way a little bit, I, I think he's fr- thrived in that, Regard I know he was playing for Birmingham City so you know in terms of the the big headlines he was already you know a young kid who wasn't exactly in the middle of them but I think um yes that would ramp up massively in going to Real Madrid I'm not naive enough to think that there wouldn't be huge pressure on him there but I think in terms of his position in this country in terms of the national team you know being Real Madrid midfielder and coming into the England camp might suit Jude Bellingham Anyway, big decision for him to make. Lovely decision for him to make in many ways. Um, just very quickly before we go, Gregor, we know you're out in Ghent at the moment. Not the most scenic place you've been this week, though, because you went to uh, Wrexham's <laughs> game against Notts County in the National League, uh, which I think a lot of people were keeping an eye over on Easter Monday. Uh, ben Foster, out of retirement, back in the Wrexham team for the last uh, couple of weeks, and he had an integral moment in the game where he ensured Wrexham's victory by saving an injury time penalty... Uh, but also, I, I think means that Wrexham are in the, the firmly driver's seat in terms of winning the National League and getting promoted uh, into League Two as well. But it was, I had a message from a mate who, by the way, had just got back from like, he'd just come off a plane from Brazil or something. He'd been away with his partner and he'd sat down and he watched the Wrexham knotts County game and yeah. he was like, this is the best game I've watched all season. Yeah, I had the same messages. I
4: was working and I was slightly dismayed by the whole thing. I was desperate for Notts County to equalise because I'm just a bit of a cynic about the whole documentary element of to Wrexham's success. But I had the same thing. Mates who'd never watched the National League couldn't get them to a Lincoln game if I'd begged them. <laughs> and they're watching Wrexham Knotts County going this is the best game I've ever seen.
0: Someone told me that like uh, by a multiple of well, a large multiple, the number of people who clicked on the final score of Wrexham Knotts County and was like vastly superior to Liverpool Arsenal. Like, really? we cannot we cannot like overstate see and you the, say we
4: don't send you to the big games mate what are you yeah, on know, yeah.
0: we cannot overstate the impact like um the documentaries had and like celebrity status has had on on Wrexham clearly but also on the national league i mean i know it's a massive cliche that everyone trotted out in the in the reports but like you couldn't have scripted it they couldn't have two, two the two teams have been tied there 100 points and like a top-of-the-table clash or 25 points ahead of the nearest rivals and basically a game to decide the who, who's most likely to be promoted and it, it was just bonkers the second half was, Notts County were like such a clash of styles as well you know Notts County were like possession dominant uh, pos, you know patient building play from the back their manager Luke Williams looked every inch the the Pep Guardiola disciple with his bald head and his puffer jacket and his white trainers and the touchline and Wrexham were up and at them, like a bit more kind of traditional English <laughs> blood and thunder football with two, you know, a, a a pacey front man and Paul Mullen up front and a big man, Ollie Palmer, trying to spring the offside trap. And County had by far the, the, the best of the play in the first half, but in the second half, Wrexham came out and they absolutely blitzed them. They like threw everything at them and then County came back and then, yeah, Wrexham took the lead again, and you think that you think they're home and dry. And then the penalty at the end, it was just bonkers. It was like the stadium was in a frenzy. And at Wrexham's stadium, the press box, is not a press box. It's a row of seats directly in front of the fans' rows of seats. So I was getting some spittle and bloomed <laughs> cries of, <laughs> <laughs> of, of anguish in my ear and all over my laptop. And then he saved it, and it was just bonkers. Amazing, amazing game. And Look, I know there are many cynics in that room there, and I'm often a cynic when I'm there with you. But Ben Foster was clearly like enthralled by what had happened, and uh, we know that he's, you know, he's got this his uh, YouTube channel and podcast, and uh, there's part of this is clearly part of the lure of returning to football was was going to be what that does to his uh, content. A a large part. A a, a large part. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure that's true, but. Uh, when he was saying afterwards, this is one of two moments that I would like bottle in my career. This is the kind of like I've not played in many games like that. I th- he believed him, like it-, it was extraordinary. And you know, uh, he was talking about because he started there when he was 18. He was on loan from Stoke, and, and he got his move to Manchester United on the back of playing in the LDV fans uh, LDV Vans Trophy final. He's saying that like you know, two decades on, his family that were coming to watch him at the start of his career are now coming to watch him at the end of his career, kind of helping Wrexham back into the Football League. So, yes.
4: He's bought it. You can be, cynical line about it. You can be line sin- and sinker. line and sinker. Get him on the second can, season. Listen, he's, he's
0: bought it. Listen, you can be cynical about it all. You can be cynical about why they bought the club, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney. But at the same time, whilst acknowledging the fact that they are loving the ride, they are enjoying it. And I have said, I've said it on the podcast before, there are many worse reasons for people to either buy a football club or come out of retirement. And we saw how much they enjoyed it and everyone else did too. Uh, uh, all,
2: all, all, I, all I hope for is that we get fewer interviews with club owners. It's just, uh, make it about the players. Make it about the fans. Greg it, and I told you about his selfie with Ryan Reynolds. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, make it about the groundsman or, or the person who's on reception or sells teas or, I don't know, whatever it might be, sells programmes. Make it about those people. That's all I'm going to say. Coming uh, to Hollywood. ITV
4: next season, oh. Hugh Woodson <laughs> interviews Ryan Reynolds <laughs> on the opening show of the season, <laughs> and Ab-
2: guaranteed. Absolutely. But all I'm going to say is, you know, make it about the those people there's so many broadcasters and journalists you know if we haven't heard enough from ryan reynolds already please all right if they get promoted if they win the league make it about the players all right that's all i'm gonna say that's all i'm gonna say all right to end the podcast on a positive note anyway tony cascarino been a pleasure to be with you tom clark and gregor robertson enjoy ghent um i guess we might reflect on whatever happens in the europa league quarterfinals a little bit later on as well Manchester United in action against Sevilla but um, of course we've got a big Premier League weekend ahead of us we'll be with you with the game on Monday so make sure you download the Times app you can pick up a newspaper as well you can subscribe online at thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game we'll see you then take care